Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. This episode picks up during a three-part series with Andy Cohen, co-CEO of innovative leading design firm Gensler. In today's episode, in part two of the conversation, Andy discusses the future of transportation and how the concept of transportation as a service and the advent of autonomous vehicles will change space planning for cities. We also examine the influence of mobility and accessibility on inequality, exploring how urban planning has the power to impact affordable housing and drive equality in our cities. I actually just finished reading a book um, by Robert Caro on, on Robert Moses. And um, in a lot of ways, it almost feels like the, the conversation you're having now is reminiscent of the fundamental debate between do we have uh, you know, an automotive-driven city or do we maintain the streetscapes that, that really create that urban vibrancy um, that, that makes cities cities. And it sounds like what you're saying is this is another... Um, restart period, right? It's another, it's another moment in time where it sounds like the private sector and, and real estate developers and real estate owners, but also public officials can recontemplate and reimagine what, what cities can be. And, and I agree. And I think that's totally the case. I'm curious, just looking retrospectively, what do you think we got wrong, you know, pre-COVID? I'm curious, like from a planning perspective and from a real estate development perspective, what do you think we got wrong? Um, and I'm talking about kind of the period from, say, 1990 to 2020. And because I think everyone knows what we got wrong in kind of the Robert Moses era, right? But what did we miss in that era that we should have seen? Well, I think we relied way, way too much on the automobile yeah. in our city. And uh, you could see major streets that were changed over time to accommodate more and more tr- lanes of traffic and then crowded the public realm. The sidewalk areas became less and less inclusive. So I, I think that, you know, major cities around the world, look, think about it this way. Uh, for the first time in human history, more people live in cities than not. More than 50% of people live in cities. By 2050, 75% of the global population will live in cities. 80% of the world's GDP is in cities, which is pretty incredible. And yet cities are only 2% of the land area in the world. and they have over 70% of the CO2 emitted in the world. So that's why I keep on focusing on cities. And, you know, it's just so apparent to me that what's happened to your point from 1990 to 2020 is the car has become so ubiquitous and so important um, to getting around. Even in cities like that don't have mass transportation, like the city of LA where I live, they're just trying to put transportation in now. But even in New York, with the advent of Uber and Lyft and, and uh, that, you know, that type of transportation, what's happened is it's actually clogged our city streets even more. And there's more and more cars circulating on the city streets, therefore taking away the public realm for people. And I think, I really do believe this is a time when we can make that massive change happen. Yeah. And you know, translating to the future, if I can, because I've been doing a lot of talking about this, is around the drive, the advent of the driverless car. And, I, you know, 
we're working with a lot of the car companies right now and technology companies. You know, they're still working on the, on the innovation, but from what I'm hearing, it's going to be here within the next, say, 15 years. So within 15 years, we have the ability to really transform our city streets because there won't be any parking or very little parking. Cars will be pulsed in our city streets from central locations and we won't need parking. Just think about all that opportunity for all those parked cars that sit idle all the time and taking that space for the public realm. Or 25,000 gas stations that exist in the United States and what we can do with that land area in our cities. Uh, so, and, and so you, we will have to design our cities of the future for major pickup and drop off areas of driverless electric cars. But we won't have to deal with the CO2 pollution. We won't have to deal with the traffic and congestion. This is what, you know, the experts are saying. Uh, and we'll be have, and it's going to change the face of our cities and real estate moving forward. So here we have COVID that's already starting this massive change and then moving to call it 10, 15 years from now, we're already going to have, we're already having driverless deliveries already. And that's what Amazon's planning for. And then in 10, 15 years, we're going to have driverless cars upon us. And we'll be able to really replant our cities. Since the early 1900s, when the Model T was created, our cities in the early 1900s were about people. They were push carts and public spaces and amenity space. And we get to take that area back to create vibrant, vibrant walkable cities again. It's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about the autonomous vehicles, in part because, you know, I think about um, the automobile and even referencing back to what we just talked about in, in Robert Moses and kind of the vision of the, the automobile-driven city, the automotive city. But it did stay with us, right? It did persist in, in public planning that, that, that we wanted cars. We believed in car ownership. And I'm curious to get your view on this. When, when we do have truly autonomous vehicles, does the, na does the nature of ownership of transportation fundamentally change? And, and what I mean by that is like, we think of today having a car as owning your transportation, right? So you, you own that. It almost feels like with Uber um, and to some extent with on-demand, we're getting this, this proof point, this kind of canary in the coal mine of what not owning transportation with transportation as a service looks like. And you reference that so many cars sit idle during the day, right? And that, that creates enormous amount of environmental waste, enormous amount of space waste. But if instead we think of cars as being just a utility, right? Whether they're cars, autonomous cars, micromobility, whether transportation becomes just a utility, what does that mean for space planning in a city? And, and I, the last thing I'll say is I, I was reading an article on this and someone said, the notion of owning a car in 2050 will be about as awkward for someone to think about as owning an elevator. Like you don't think about an elevator as being personal property. It just conveys you, right? Spatially to where you're going. And yet we've come, we've been conditioned to think of transportation as something we own. Uh, and sorry, last related point to this question, I know it's a long one is America in particular um, has mythologized car ownership in a way. I mean, you can look at any newsstand and you see just car and driver and all the like, obsession with cars and ownership of cars. And I'm wondering how in America, if transportation moves to a utility, will we want to give up our right to own cars, right? Um, 
Will that become a source of identity for many Americans in the future? At first, I think I think it has to do with age. You know, you know, people my age, my age are used to owning and using a car as you know part of your life. It's part of your, and some for some people, it's part of their identity. <clears throat> but take my children; both my kids uh, are obviously working and don't own cars, and they don't. And I believe the millennials of the world right now. You know, they take Uber and Lyft, they ride their bike, or they, you know, they take scooters, but they, they don't own cars. And so I think it's a more of an age thing. And the amount of cars that are being bought right now are mostly being bought by older Americans than younger Americans. So I think it's already shifting already. And I think that the, uh, you know, I think, I, I really do think in the future that uh, it will be ubiquitous. It'll be, uh, like, like you mentioned in your quote, that people will not have to depend on the car for anything. That you'll be ubiquitous as getting to your point and getting in an elevator and being able to use um, just-in-time transportation, which obviously will cars will be able to drive much closer together within three feet apart from one another and be able to you know pick you up from and to your destination directly. Which I think, from an efficiency standpoint, uh, is going to be just so much better. And look, there'll still be, I, people ask me this question all the time, there'll still be car enthusiasts that own, own their own car. Or someone might own one car, a family might own one car instead of two. You know, one car, and by the way, 60% of all trips are less than six miles. So wow. Think about that. There's a lot of trips that are shorter trips. And that's why you saw the last couple of years before COVID, the advent of scooters. Because the last mile, that dealt with the last mile. People wanted to travel you know, in, in their cities or in their neighborhoods for a mile or less or from the, from the train station to their, to their job. And so I do believe that, um, and that's a really important statistic because if you think about it, if all those trips are local trips, it's going to totally change in the future when we have driverless cars about how our cities are, are utilized. So I think for the car enthusiast, you'll still have a car moving forward, maybe one instead of two or three. Uh, and then it'll slowly traverse away where you won't, just won't need a car at all and you'll have local transportation. It's interesting to hear you talk about micromobility because it, it, in some ways it also seems like a canary in the coal mine for how transportation changes. Because, you, you know, um, when we were looking at the space and we looked at the previous companies that had tried to, quote, disrupt walking, right? The initial version of that was Segway, right? Everyone remembers Segways. Sometimes you still see tours that are happening on segways and policemen at the airport on segways. Um, but it almost feels like what, what that concept, that form factor got wrong was ownership. That what was different about the, the, the wave of micromobility that has kind of taken the world in, by storm in the last few years is that they didn't change anything. In fact, most of the scooters that are on the streets today in Paris and Los Angeles and San Francisco are actually worse form factors and worse models than the segways. What they were though is ubiquitous and unowned, right? They were a utility right. service. They were on demand. They had this flexibility and ownership. And so it, it's interesting because it's, it almost forces you to contemplate going back to your concept of like the, the 20 minute city, um, which is what's the, what's the value of walking, right? And how do you disrupt walking? Um, and to the extent you have these different modalities, autonomous vehicles for kind of intermediate trips and 
micromobility for much shorter term trips and then your own two feet. Um, if you're going at a very short distance, how does that change and condition what we, what we demand and what, what, what cities look like in terms of what's nested together between commercial districts and residential districts and retail districts? Um, and I guess to put that into a question, it's, it's that, um, do you think that as uh, transportation becomes more ubiquitous, as things can come to you, this axiom that has defined real estate for so long, which is location, 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 right? That, that's what you hear whenever you go into the real estate industry. That location starts to become more amorphous, more nebulous, more flexible, more fungible in terms of the things come to you. And people then are making more deliberate choices about where to live because they have on-demand delivery. They have same-day delivery. They can get anything they want via this ubiquitous transportation network. How do you think that changes the, the appearance of cities? If you were to look at it from like a 30,000 foot level. Sure. I would say as long as the uh, neighborhood, the community, the city is all about live, work, play, that it's mixed use, that it's walkable, that it's vibrant. If that takes place, then we can have more ubiquitous cities and communities that are connected together. Uh, but again, it comes back to that 20-minute zone, and COVID's proved this out, by the way. If you look at it, people are only walking or commuting within, say, a 15-minute commute of their home right now. And that's the key, I think, of the future is these walkable, vibrant cities. Live, work, play, where you can work and live and, and play in the same general area. It's, it's the future. And I do believe that that's why you're seeing much more micro-mobility that we've been discussing. And by the way, we haven't mentioned bicycling, and bicycling is, you know, the utilization of bicycles, bicycles is way over the top recently because people, again, want to live within that 15, 20-minute, live, work, and play within that 20-minute zone. But then connecting to hubs, obviously mass transportation that already exists, combined with the autonomous vehicles of the future, and remember, we're hoping that in the future, we're thinking in the future, these won't be hour and a half commutes anymore. You know, a city like Los Angeles over the last year, it could take an hour to get anywhere that would only take 15 minutes 10 years ago. So I believe that it's going to really help with traffic also, which has been, if you ask people what the major issues of cities are, it's traffic, obviously, is a major, major uh, issue of our cities moving forward. And it sounds like what you're describing is, to some extent, what I think of Los Angeles as being today, which is this this kind of um, constellation of you know micro right. that are all all kind of right. amalgamated and intermeshed with one another, and they become a city unto itself. It becomes a solar system, right? Of these different hubs, exactly. nodes, constellation and, of cities, exactly. And exactly. kind of transitioning that a, a bit to more of a, a I guess a social um, and an economic question. How do you think that impacts, you know, one of the, the very important issues we're struggling with in the U.S., especially today, of inequality, right? And how um, kind of segmenting different populations by wealth um, or by profession, by working class, or by um, kind of the, the affordability of housing. Do you think that leads to a more inclusive city? Or do you think that further leads to segmentations of our cities between the affluent areas and, and these kind of um, more challenged um, parts of the city that, that really struggle to get city services? 
Well, everything we've just been talking about is about accessibility and right. having access to transportation, accessibility and mobility. Uh, so the you know, cities of the future are all going to be, and the major issue you're talking about societally is about affordability, and certainly our cities are dealing with that right now, and accessibility. Uh, look at the major cities in the United States, and affordability is a huge issue right now. You know, the separation between the rich and the poor and what's taking place and demographics that are taking place in our cities. So I've had the opportunity of presenting to many cities about this and, you know, the goal of a cre creating much more housing, affordable housing, you know, a, a stock within our, within our cities is so important. And I got to give cities a lot of credit. There's a, many new codes and zoning codes coming into play that give density bonuses for creating more affordable housing. They allow you to build more, developers to build more, if you provide affordable uh, housing within that area. We get, remember, I want to come back to the third element, which is the public realm, and creating those great, diverse public spaces where everyone has equal access to parks and amenities and streets and dining and so forth, and then combine that with uh, what which we were just talking about, accessibility. Accessibility, affordability, public realm. Accessibility being so important. Accessibility to jobs, accessibility to education, accessibility uh, to you know affordable housing. Just can't emphasize that enough. And and I'm curious because it, it, it sounds like there's so much incumbent on cities to to do right to utilize this opportunity to right themselves right to kind of repair some of the urban design wrongs of, of the past. And I'm curious to contextualize that in the context of where we are today, which is, you know, today, at least our company is working remotely. Um, and knowledge workers, it seems like, uh, just based on my network, are thinking much more broadly about where to live. They're still thinking about cities, but the notion that I have to be in New York to work in finance, or I have to be in San Francisco to work in technology, those assumptions are being questioned. Um, and do you think we end up in a in an environment in the U.S. in particular where cities are in competition for knowledge workers, meaning the cities that create that robust live-work 20-minute city environment mm -hmm. are attracting knowledge workers? And, and the, the way I think about it is it's a bit like the kind of direct-to-consumer model for enterprise software, which is cities, of course, are trying to generate tax revenues. And what they know is that if you attract enough tech workers to a particular city, that corporation for which they work will probably have to open an office there. So it's a bit like how Slack, right, sells its product into companies. They get users to use it directly, right, without a corporate subscription. And then once enough users are using it, they go to the company and they say, hey, you should have a corporate subscription. Do you think that a city like Boise will say, let's attract Google workers in, you know, building a, a very livable, very dynamic city, a 20-minute city that is very attractive for families and for, for young professionals. And in doing so, they'll get the concentration of Google workers where Google will almost be forced to say, we have to open an office in Boise. Do you think that we end up in that kind of environment where cities are almost in competition directly with one another for these, the knowledge workers that will, are kind of forebears of tax revenues? Well, look at what uh, the competition that was, uh, you know, a year ago around Amazon and where they locate. Right. And by the way, one of the other key components was education, higher education close by. Right. And 
or you look at the migration of companies from say California to Texas and what they're looking for. And again, it's, we talked about the 20 minute city and walkable vibrant cities. We're talking about education and access to younger workers, you know, young tech workers and the ability to create, let them thrive in these cities. But also I would say that there's two parts to this argument. There's one of the suburban like cities or smaller cities, but then there's the vibrancy of a New York or a San Francisco where, you know, you know, take Google or, or take Google as, as an example, they were still looking to create their own environment within a city. So to create a campus, a campus within a campus, Salesforce did it in San Francisco, a campus within a campus where you can use the public amenities of that city and not be a closed campus, but you're part of that city and you have access to all these knowledge and tech workers that live there. So I think there's two, there were two models that were going on. One of more the suburban model, you know, big campus model. Uh, you know, you mentioned Boise. There's many campuses, say in Austin, Texas, that are like that. You know, self-sufficient campuses. And then there was the it was moving towards more of an urban campus, where you're integrated within the uh, social fabric of a city using the amenities of that city. Uh, and and canvassing the younger people, they wanted to be in that environment. They wanted that vibrant walkable environment. So I think it's both. I think it, I think it could be happening both both ways. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.